Jack here. Two quick announcements today. First, we want to offer a one-hour free coaching uh, to one lucky listener who reviews us on iTunes in the next week. Uh, reviewing us and subscribing to us on iTunes really helps our rankings, uh, which draws people to the podcast. And we'd really appreciate your help in that regard. So if you leave us a review, you will have a chance to be chosen for a free coaching uh, from Zach or myself. Second, remember to sign up for our event with Thinking Poker this March 25th and 26th. Uh, we have fewer than half our seats remaining, and the sessions on Saturday are particularly sparse. So get over to the site soon, justhandspoker.com slash thinkingpokernyc to reserve your seat. All right, guys. Thank you so much, and enjoy this week's episode. Um, but no, just on kind of like general quantitative skepticism, so I think during election seasons, you see a lot, or as well as during the Super Bowl, you see a lot of, I think, everyday folk commenting on, uh, you know, the odds of things, the probability of, you know, very unlikely things happening, people betting on those things. Um, I want to interrupt you right there, because you're going to ask do. something, but <laughs> that just brings up, here's, here's, this is what drives me crazy about Super Bowl, I'm a uh, Seattle Seahawks fan. I was born and raised in Seattle. And three years ago in the, in the Super Bowl, uh, first and goal on the two-yard line, a touchdown wins the Super Bowl, Seattle throws a pass, and it gets intercepted, and they lose the Super Bowl to the Patriots. Last Sunday, first and goal on the two, a, Super Bowl, a touchdown wins the Super Bowl, New England throws a pass, and it's almost intercepted, and nobody says a word. Everybody says the Seattle pass was the stupidest play ever called. Nobody thinks that in New England play was any. It's just it, pure hindsight bias, and it's it's with everything. It's you know if it works, you're a genius. Uh, if it doesn't work, you're uh, you're uh, you're stupid. And I'm going to say the same thing about both Trump and Romney. I'm I'm I bet on elections. I follow them pretty closely. I get the odds. Both Trump and Romney were pretty close to 50-50 shots, and I had bet on both of them because I got good odds. Romney lost. Trump won, and suddenly everybody decided that was foreordained, and that comes out with reasons for it. The fact is, you got two coin flips. They were darn close um, um, in both cases, and in just sort of the luck of the draw, the way things worked out. Reading any big, uh, you know, uh, meaning into those events is just, you know, reading information into a coin flip. So, where are you getting your odds from? Because for me, following various media sources, and I think one that comes out probably a lot of a lot of our listeners will know, it's five thirty-eight. And you know, Nate's over at one point. I think the the most generous odds he gave to Trump were like thirty-five percent. But most media outlets and at at least most like online sports books uh, didn't give Trump that good odds really ever. So where where are you getting fifty fifty from? <laughs> well, first of all, let me get a little geeky on you here. Please do. You look at five thirty eight, and you look at their time series. You know the odds they quote over time. If you're really quoting odds, it has to be a fifty fifty chance that it goes up or down tomorrow. If you think the odds are fifty percent today, it's got to be fifty. Actually, the, I don't want to use that number because it might be a little confusing. Let's say you say the odds mm-hmm. are seventy percent today. It's got to be even that it goes up to eighty or down to sixty. If it isn't. If there are trends in your uh, oh, yeah. series, then you're not quoting probabilities. Um, um, and if you look at 538's time series, and 538 is probably the best of the media sources for this kind of stuff, they know. You could 
you could win money betting against them just looking at their own odds histories. You could say, look, the odds have been going up, so they are going to continue to go up, so I'm going to buy. And then when they change and start going down, I'm going to sell, and then they're going to keep going down. And that's just something, you know, it's, it's sort of second nature to anybody who invests. That, you know, things have momentum. If things trend, then, then, then you get with it. Um, um, I, look at, uh, I, I, I look at some smart money betting. Um, if you look at just the published odds on things like Betfair and some of the other sites, yeah. those aren't completely accurate. And the reason is, well, there's two problems. One is that there's some known biases with, with prediction betting markets. But the other one is that there's limited capital on the other side. Um, so what happened with Trump, for example, was um, early on, Trump money coming in was dumb money. And the people, the smart money was just taking those bets. About can can you elaborate a little bit more on like how they did that, and you know? And well, so, so they, okay, there, yeah. there, there's smart money and there's dumb money. Yeah, dumb money is basically random, but it's not random. It's 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 somewhat predictable. So so it has trends, and it's based on sentiment, based on news account, you know, based on yeah. people who aren't really don't really know the odds. They're just kind of betting their gut, or or what they want to happen. Yeah. And there's people who make a living doing this stuff, and the people making a living doing this stuff. You know, we're setting the Trump. This is Trump is four to one, three to one, something like that in that era, and they think he's really not, you know, ten to one. So they're just taking this Trump money. About six weeks before the election, that stopped, and they started laying off that Trump money like crazy. And the odds never got back, you know, got much above three to one. But they were just, you know, they were laying off all their Trump, and they were going the other way, and they were taking, uh, they were they were long Trump. So when you see that happen, that's when you is so. You're saying so when you see that happen, how could we have seen that happen? Is that something like is that proprietary information you have access to because you know people, or is that something that you know one it, of our it, listeners could look up for the next big election? Well, okay, you can't just Google, you know, what's the smart money doing? Of course, but uh, to some extent, it's knowing people, and to some extent, it's watching patterns, is sort of seeing the patterns of how things um, move, which. When news comes in to move the market, you know, it tends to move it more in one direction than the other. And that tells you that's where, so if, you know, if, if some news comes out that suddenly people want to bet more on Trump, and if Trump's odds don't move, that tells you the smart money is, you know, ignoring that information. They're just picking those bets. But if a little bit of news comes out and suddenly the odds change a lot, that says, okay, the smart money is, is moving where it's going. So you're talking to people that are, you know, as you call them, savvy investors, smart money, and you're also monitoring, like, the index of odds on sites like Betfair and... Yeah, and, okay. and, 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 and looking for, uh, uh, trying to see patterns on things like that. It's completely unrelated to anything you read. Any, you know, political commentators are... I don't know if you've read the book. I think I might have mentioned it last time. Uh, Expert Political Judgment or Super Forecasting by Philip Tedlock. You mentioned it when yeah. we spoke, and it's on my long list of books. Okay. Not, have not read it yet. But it is, <laughs> you know, it, it, there's no point in looking at the newspaper for odds. And uh, 538, you know, Nate Silver's a smart guy, but he's not a better. He's not an investor. He's an analyst at heart. And, and you know, you just need more experience betting, I think, to, to make good odds for these things. So this, this is kind of a nice segue into one of your books. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, Red-Blooded Risk, your newest book, and kind of like... You know why it's important to actually have experience betting things yourself, and sure. Although, yeah. actually, my newest book is Financial Risk Management for Dummies. Oh, but my mistake. Red-blooded risk is is probably of more interest to people on the <laughs> podcast. Uh, uh, financial risk management for dummies is really aimed at people who either want to be or work with financial risk managers. Um, 
the uh, red blood risk is really about uh, uh, taking risk. And, and the way I put it is I, was, uh, I went to college in the 70s, and I was a quantitative guy, and I was interested in gambling, and I playing a lot of poker um, in those days, but also I was interested in other kinds of gambling and prediction. And I was just really shocked at what I thought was the terrible quality of quantitative analysis you saw at uh, you know, the top universities from the top researchers, or if you went to you know, private firms that were doing stuff. And I have some stories in the book about, about how bad this stuff is, just how little trust you can put in the numbers you read and things. Um, the data is terrible. The analysis is, you know, terrible. Uh, you know, the whole field of economics seems to have come down to quantitative economics anyway. Is they invent these things to measure. So you may want to measure the unemployment rate. Well, the unemployment rate makes a lot of assumptions that people are either employed or unemployed, looking for work, or they don't count. But if you really know, if you have ten friends, they have ten different employment states. There's a guy who's happily employed. There's a guy who's employed but hates his job. There's somebody who's unemployed but doesn't want to work. There's somebody who's unemployed doesn't want to work. There's somebody working part time like to work full time. So you have all these different states. So anyway, so you do this measure. You measure it badly. You call people up and ask them, "Have you looked for work in the last year?" You know, and so and then you write these numbers down, and then you do all these elaborate models to predict them. And then your elaborate models don't predict them very well, <laughs> but they're not really that meaningful in the first place. And you're just, you know, talking to, you know, it's just it's got nothing to do with what's going on. No way you'd want these people running the economy. They are though, right? Um, not so clear. They certainly <laughs> think they are. <laughs> they, you know, they get quoted and interviewed like they are. I kind of like to hope that, and I think there's some truth to this that there's actually some smart money out there driving things, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so so then you but, but, you know you have this feeling it's okay fine you you think everybody else is stupid but maybe you're stupid you know and so how do you know how do you really figure out what works and what doesn't and the really attractive thing about going to Las Vegas and betting is if you win you know it's not because people like you or because you were clever and you know fooled them you know they they don't want to pay you money they'll do anything they can not to pay you money if you win then you were right um, and you get so much more experience you know you can do hundreds of bets a night and you know on the computer you make it thousands whereas in a lot of fields you're making you know maybe one bet if I take years to find out what happened so unless you actually get this experience of doing this over and over um, I just you know I, I don't know how you get confidence in your risk uh, uh, your risk-taking ability I think risk-taking ability is one of the most important things that's succeed in life even if you don't love risk even if you're not somebody who's doing this because you're a fan of it or you think it's important uh, you're forced to take these risks, and the people who can make them smart do very well, and the people who don't, uh, and most people don't, uh, their success is just a matter of luck. And do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the concept of risk? I think a lot of people think of risk as like this: every all risk is bad, and I want to try to mitigate risk. And obviously, you know, there's, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's interesting, and it. it it's not just in English, it's also, it's, it's in many languages. I don't know if it's in all languages, but it's in many languages. We have all these words for risk, but we have really no words for risk that don't express an opinion on it. So something can be, somebody can be careless or reckless or speculative or risky uh, or dangerous, you know, or somebody can be, you know, innovative, outside the box, bold, you know, and they mean exactly the same thing, except one of them is, you know, Seattle throwing the interception, and the other one is New England not throwing the interception. Um, and uh, the only way you can sort of express risk in neutral terms is to get very technical words like, you know, he increased the volatility of his outcome or something. But, you know, most people don't talk that way. Um, and it's a very deep thing that people 
think about risk as good or bad. They think about it in moral terms. They think, you know, if you, you know, if your heart is pure and uh, and God is with you, then you know all your risks are bold and will succeed. And if uh, you're not favored for whatever reason, then you know everything you do will turn out badly. Um, and in fact, rationally, some things turn out well, some things turn out badly. And and here's something I. I I say to people, and it's it, it's, it's really a poker wisdom. Um, over your life, you're going to take millions of risks, and you're going to get your median outcome. So, no, don't complain about being lucky or unlucky. You're going to get your median outcome, and all you got to do is make sure that you line up your bets and size them properly, so your median outcome is good. You know, it's not really a question of risk in in, in a lifetime. Now, that's not completely true. And the reason it isn't is some bets are so big that if you lose them, you lose everything else. So if, yeah. if you're born in Syria, then, well, you know, that you're not going to luck your way out of that one. You know, if you're hit by a car walking down the street, well, there's not too much you can do about that. But almost all the risks people worry about and almost all the risks that people uh, uh, have some control over are, are absolutely in that, uh, in that category where, where you're just going to get the average. And what I say to people, you know, in poker is that, you know, it's, it's the same thing. In the long run, your hands are going to even out. Now, it is true that it might be true that the biggest hand of your life when there's, you know, $250,000 in the pot, that's the one thing where the guy draws the one out on the river or something. Okay. But, uh, you know, you play enough poker, you keep your stakes, you know, even enough. Um, you know, the drop luck of the cards isn't going to make any difference. Um, um, what matters is do you consistently get your money with the best of it? And if you sort of think that way about life, it's uh, it's um, uh, you, you have a much better chance of success. The mistake by far most people make is not taking enough risk, and not taking and and, and when they take it, they take it foolishly. They take it the wrong ones. Uh, they uh, they take one big one rather than ten small ones, and ten small ones you can predict the outcome. One big one, uh, you really can't. And it has nothing to do with how you feel about it. Another thing I think economics gets wrong is they tell you, oh, well, think about your risk preferences or your utility function or things like that. But, you know, smart risk-taking is smart risk-taking. You don't have somebody at the poker table, you know, you know, how do you feel about risk? You know, you're sitting down at the table, you're taking the risk. Don't let your personal inclinations interfere with playing the hand right. And I think that's just as true in, uh, in, in life as well. So what are some specific examples of risks that, you know, a lot of people... Uh, generally aren't taking that you think they should be taking? Or what are some examples of risk that you've taken in your own personal life that you feel like, you know, the society might think of as big risks but are, in fact, kind of small, you know, it, small It's really risks? more the number. I mean, I think that, you know, if I, if I told you, I don't, I don't have any hair-raising stories of risks that would, you know, turn your hair white, but um, I probably do take more risks than most people because that's the point. You take lots and lots of little ones and, uh, and, uh, Hope to uh, um, get get your median outcome. Um, it, it's you know you wake up in the morning and do what you're supposed to do. You know how many people really wake up and think, okay, what is you know what are my opportunities today? What are out there? Um, people just don't take enough opportunities. It's uh, you know there's all kinds of things that could be happening. You could go out and you could meet somebody who changes your life in all sorts of ways. You could you know send in a poem to be published. You could you know. Uh, uh, you know, uh, put a blog post out, you do something that just catches on and does a lot of stuff. And yeah, the odds of all of those things are pretty low, but the cost is 
close to zero as well. And uh, you do enough of them, you know, you're going to hit some of them. And there's downsides too. You could get sucked into something that doesn't work out. You could, uh, you know, meet somebody who ruins your life or whatever. But, uh, you know, to just sort of decide you're going to do the same thing every day, decide that's if you can tell me, you know, what you're going to do, what your schedule is for the next week, you know, what I'm going to do at this hour and this hour, you know, I'm going to wake up at this time, I'm going to go to this place to work, I'm going to work, you know, I don't think you're really thinking enough about opportunity. I think you've kind of got blinders on and you're not seeing those opportunities to either side of you. Like most of our guests, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I'll tell you though, people think of it when you when you know, I'd say this, and one of the objections I get people say, "Yeah, that's because you know you're you're you know a rich white guy, and you know it's uh, it's uh, you know everything's easy for you, and you know you went to Harvard, and you know all the doors were opened, and so on." Um, and so it's easy for you to say that because these are all these aren't really risks. You're just talking about playing on the edge because even if all of these things fell through, you'd still be okay. Um, you know, you had, had a good family life, had a lot of you know things things my way. I think it's even more true when those things aren't true. I think it's, you know, it, it's, look, if you're, you know, born rich and you're just a happy person, uh, whatever happens, then, you know, okay, you don't have to take a lot of risks, you're, you're, you'll be okay. Um, but, uh, uh, but the worse off you are, the more desperate things are, that's when you have to take them. Again, all, most people get conservative when they're desperate, when that's exactly the time you should be doing, doing reverse. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, a little while ago we were talking about, uh, you know, the economic, sy- economic system for, the education system for economics not being a really effective trainer, partly because the tools that you're being trained to wield are not effective, uh, but also, you know, learning to manage risk maybe is something that is not taught well in schools. Do you think there's a way for people to maybe less from like a, a lifestyle perspective and more from like a pure quantitative uh, perspective okay, develop those skills without yeah, putting a lot of money on the line we'll see what kind of risk takers you are this is from a paper, a recent paper done by, I don't know if you've ever heard of Victor Hagani he was one of the founders of long term capital management the big hedge fund that crashed in 1998, uh, he's done a lot of other interesting stuff and, and Richard Dewey uh, did the paper with him and they did an experiment and they got 61 uh, these were either young people starting their career in finance, um, or uh, some of them were, were finance uh, MBA students. You know, but you know, so, so these are people who had a lot of quantitative training, and they let them play this game. They gave them twenty-five dollars, and they were allowed to flip coins uh, with a sixty percent chance of winning. It was a computer coin, and they could make any amount of bets they wanted. They could make series of bets, and they had half an hour to do it. You could make about three hundred bets in half an hour. Um, now, there was a cap. They said, okay, there's a cap on how much you can win. We're not going to tell you what it is, but if you make a bet that would put you above the cap, then we'll tell you what the cap is and bring the bet down. So, you know. Um, um, uh, so, how much do you bet? First bet, first coin flip. You got $25. So, my first instinct is to think about the Kelly Criterion, and that's, you know, uh, for those of you not familiar with what that is, it's. Uh, like the mathematical instrument for determining like a bankroll given the amount of volatility would that be a fair definition, Aaron? Um, yeah, the the adjunct amount of volatility, yes. Yeah, so that it's those principles that you know determine 
like my bankroll management. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you, you know the Kelly bet for a sixty percent coin flip. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I'm gonna just use my instinct as a professional gambler. Uh -huh. um, I would say that probably my first bet should be. I want to say like between four and five dollars. Jack. Well, how much are we starting with again? Twenty-five dollars. And we can make about three hundred bets. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I. Well, I'm just say higher or lower than Zach. Say, would you? I would probably go higher or lower. I would probably go a little higher, but I don't. I would just be going by feel. Okay, those are both reasonable bets. Kelly Criterion is the exact right solution if there isn't a cap. Now, be, but but that doesn't. I'm, I'm not telling you it's wrong because there is a cap. Yeah. The thing about the Kelly Criterion is it gives you a reasonable bet. So Kelly Criterion says bet 20% of bankroll with a 60% edge. Oh, okay. So. Uh, when with a sixty percent odds, yeah. Well, it's your it's on a on a you know all or nothing bet like this. It's just your edge. So it's you have sixty percent chance of winning minus forty percent chance of losing. You have a twenty percent edge, and you bet twenty yeah. percent. Um, the actual optimal bet. I mean, there's different depends on exactly how you model the cap or what your expectations of it are. But is is like three fifty three dollars fifty cents or so. But. Okay. If you do any kind of reasonable bet, including that, you bet 20% of bankroll, or you bet you know $4 out of 25, so you bet 16% uh, of bankroll, if you just do something like that, yeah. um, you're almost always going to get to the cap, which happened to be $250. You get there like 90, 95% of the time with any reasonable betting strategy. If you don't, if you just don't go crazy. Yeah. Um, more people went broke than got to 250. Wow. The average payout was $91. The average payout should be like $240. If you, if you, if, and I don't mean if you bet perfectly. I just mean if you just don't bet. So some people bet it all on the first flip. And that's crazy because then you, if you lose the first flip, 40% yeah. chance, you lose all the opportunity to lose for those well, future bets. To have those 60, yeah. Um, there were people who bet on tails. They bet on the 40% side. <laughs> I mean, they just really... <laughs> and, and remember, these are people trained in finance. And they know how to solve this problem on paper. Um, but they clearly either A, didn't believe what they had learned in class or weren't able to calculate because what they learned was so complicated that they couldn't apply a simple rule of thumb like Kelly. Like anybody who's gambled, you know, you may not have heard of Kelly, but you kind of have this feel for about what you should be doing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and so, so they, so they do really terrible at this and, and they, Victor, uh, um, uh, Interviewed him afterwards, and he said, "Well, you know, have you ever heard of the Kelly Criterion?" Essentially, nobody had. He said, "Well, how do you think about how to do this kind of stuff?" All of them knew the theory. Well, you get your utility function, you do the probability, you integrate, you do this, and that. none of them did it. So none of them believe it, and none of them really use it. And and what you need in life for risk taking is you need good general rules of thumb. You know, the thing about the Kelly criterion is you really can do it in your head if you learn how to do it. Um, it doesn't depend on, it doesn't start asking how do you feel about money, what's your utility function. Again, Kelly criterion is a lot like I was saying before. What it says is that if, if in every bet you bet to maximize your median outcome, then over life you're going to have the best yeah. outcome. And it is, it will always do better than any essentially different betting strategy. So you're guaranteed to do better. Now, as I say, it doesn't apply exactly in this case because of the cap, 
but um, but you can first of all, it doesn't give you a very wrong answer, and second, if you did adjust it for the cap, it, it you know it, it's pretty easy to do that as well. But it's it's just you know people who just have no idea how to bet, and these people are going out to get financial. And these were not you know the borderline students who almost flunked out. These are people who got top financial jobs at top places in New York, or, or people at top business schools, and so on. This. Uh, you know, it's pretty scary to me, and it just makes no sense to me that, you know, if you're getting people in finance or risk management, there are risk management programs that are just as bad. Um, you know, you got to send people a gamble for a little bit. It's, uh, it's, it's just, there's no other way to learn this stuff. There really isn't. It's, it's just, um, maybe, maybe I, it's just my experience as a poker player that makes that sound so like, unexplainable to me. Well, first of all, it sounds like you're saying that maybe, I mean, if, if these people all should have known some sort of function that is equatable to the Kelly criterion. Well, what I'm saying is there's two things you could do. You could just train people. You could let people practice. Now, it is true, most people, when they practice gambling, get worse at it. So you, have, you need some coaching, too. But let's say you have them practice gambling, you give them a little coaching, and, and they would have some, they wouldn't go crazy. They wouldn't bet everything the first time. Or you could teach them mathematical rules that lead to sensible behavior. Um, but they're doing neither one. They're teaching them mathematical rules, but they're too complicated to use in practice, and, and the students don't really believe them. And they're not forcing them to get the actual practical experience yeah. with coaching. Um, one of the things, this is back in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, um, when option trading was just getting going. And you had a lot of people who were, knew how to trade. But generally, they were high school dropouts, didn't know any math, weren't, you know, didn't, weren't really good with options. You had lots of people who knew the math that could sort of figure out these options. Um, so, uh, so, you know, there really wasn't anybody who could trade these things. And, and what happened is um, a guy named Mike Becker, who was a World Bridge champion, uh, had a friend who, was, who had just won uh, the World Black Emmett Championship. And uh, and they recruited a bunch of other games players to go and trade the options. And they had they didn't necessarily be they weren't necessarily able to solve these stochastic differential equations. To the price, but they had a good quantitative sense that you could you know how to trade options and what what different uh, um, ways to make money on the spreads were and so on. Uh, and they were good at trading. You know they they were quick made quick decisions. They you know knew how to manage risk. And the big thing is they didn't blow up. Most of them had blown up at points in their lives. If you live off gambling winnings, most people, you know, lose them all a few times. And you learn things from that. You know, you learn how to how to get by and how not to do that. And that really was until the advent of kind of cheap handheld computers in maybe the late 80s, early 90s. Those were the people that were uh, setting all the option prices. If we hadn't had those people, I don't know that option trading could have... Um, um, you know, ever really evolved. And then what's interesting is what they were replaced by, where we started getting all these physicists and mathematicians from China and the former Soviet Union, um, starting about 1990 or so, or actually starting in the late 80s because all their jobs disappeared. They were all trained to like make nuclear weapons or to, you know, do various things. And suddenly there were no jobs for that anymore. So then it was, you know, communist trained mathematicians who uh, came in and took over and ran something, you know, we American business schools, American mathematics schools, science schools, whatever, all these things never turned out people who could do this, uh, do this work. And they didn't turn around and say, oh, well, we better re reassess our, what we're teaching, what 
what is relevant? Are we teaching the right way or something? They just went on teaching the same stuff that you know didn't work before and hasn't worked since. So are the top like what type when you say financial people specifically like are the top traders like not from these kind of American business and financial institutions that are generally considered you know to be so have so much reverence like Harvard Business School like are, are they are they not churning out the top traders or no yeah <laughs> they're not um, um, <laughs> some of them um, um, you know Ken Griffin for example the head of Citadel was a Harvard undergraduate but but didn't go to uh, graduate school. Um, um, to the extent they do have top ac academic credentials, they're typically in uh, mathematics or physics or something like that. Um, but then they switched on their own. They didn't, it's not like they learned in mathematics class or in physics class how to do it. They got these ideas, but then they went out on their own and started okay. doing it. You'll find a lot more blackjack card counters, poker players um, in, uh, in those positions than you will, you know, top students at, at Top business schools. And that's still true today. Like still true today. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If you uh, there is a uh, once a year there's a big charity uh, poker event on Wall Street, but run by Jim Simons, who founded Renaissance Capital. It's for he has a charity, Math for America, hires math, mathematics grad students to go in and teach in public schools. Uh, and many of the top investors and traders are there, and you know. Yeah, you see poker players at blackjack and card counters, as I say. You don't see uh, various forms of advantage gambling. Yeah. What you don't see is people who learn this stuff in physical. And if they did, they're not using it. Have you ever had aspirations of running a, a risk or trading school? Because it, it sounds, you know, you've obviously written books on the subject and have strong opinions about how this should be taught and how everyone is getting it wrong. Or if you didn't personally have aspirations, like how would... How would someone go about designing an ideal kind of educational? Well, I have model. taught. I have okay. taught, and, and, and but not 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 in the way I would like to. I, you know, I yeah. tried to do some of these things in class. You know, tried to um, um, get some of these things in, but you really couldn't. You know, it would be very difficult to do it within a university. I've, I've written some articles about this and, and, and sent them around, and uh, and uh, not no, nobody really takes it very seriously because you'd really need people to. I mean, ideally, they'd be really gambling. But if you, if you absolutely can't stomach that, at least people should be beating prediction markets, right? You figure, okay, you know, just go to prediction markets and, and, and try and beat them. Maybe it's not for real cash. Maybe it's just for keeping score. But learn how to predict things. Learn what you can predict and what you can't. Learn, you know, what your edge is. Learn how to take a small edge and consistently um, um, turn it into some profits. And I don't know why you can't tell people, okay, you know, you know, each semester you got to take one. You got you know the semester you got to learn poker. The semester you got to do blackjack card counting. This kind of, one thing I'd love. I mean, one thing I'd just tell them out to do. You know, these scratch off lottery tickets is uh, you know they they all could be beaten. Um, all of them now. I, I know they used to all be able to be beaten. But. I, well, I, I can't swear everyone has. I've never heard of one that somebody tried to that they weren't successful at. Wow. Okay. You can't make very much money at it because you'd have to be an insider to do it. Yeah. Like uh, one of the first ones they had was they were they printed them up in batches of a thousand, boxes of a thousand, and the winning cards were always in the same order. So the guys who owned the stores, you know, figured that pretty quickly and took them all out and, and, and did it. But as a player, you know, you could figure out, you know, if, if you found a store that didn't know that, you could figure out the order and wait to buy the right one. But pretty, you could only do one at a time, and you had to wait around a long time for it. And you know, these things were you had like a five hundred dollar prize. 
Um, but again, that's the kind of thing that you would teach people. Okay, you know, if you know things can be beaten, you know, there are if you look hard and you you know figure out ways to do it, and uh, you make a little bit of money there, so you don't have to charge tuition. You just you know have them win the stuff, and that, that pays for the school. Yeah. Um, and uh, and they get experience looking at things like that, what works and what doesn't, and and also. You sometimes try this stuff and, and it doesn't work. You know, you get fooled, and, uh, and you got to learn that too. That, you know how how to exploit an edge without uh, overextending yourself. It's funny you use the scratch off tickets as an example because I remember reading some long article about a guy who beat multiple uh, like state lotteries and then like wrote in to I, th- I believe it was the state of Texas that he eventually uh, wrote to, but was like here. I, like, beat your system for, like, a few million dollars. This is exactly how I did it. And I have, like, the ability to make sure that you and all other state lottery uh, systems, like, will actually introduce real randomness so this won't happen again. And they're just categorically not interested, you yeah. know? Well, I'll tell you, here's the problem from their point of view. The, the, the way to make an unbeatable scratch-off system is to use random numbers. But yeah. if you use random numbers, you can't exactly control the payout. And it's very hard to audit things, and it's hard to... You know, you tell the guy putting the ticket, okay, I want, you know, one ticket in a thousand to win $500. How can you tell if it's, if they're doing it randomly? You know, you, you can't really audit that very well. Oh, yeah. So they, what they say is, okay, we want you to print a thousand tickets. One of them is a thousand dollars. And, you know, you've got to put a serial number on them so we can track it. But then people look at the serial numbers and figure that out. You got to put them in a certain order so we can, you know. Um, um, and there's just a, there, these state lotteries are not run by gambling professionals. They're not run by people who think like, you know, how am I going to make this uh, um, foolproof? And therefore, there's there's various different ways people um, um, figure out how to do it. And this is this this is what I mean. That this is a kind of experience. If you spend your time trying to beat these things, you get a lot smarter about how to design them. Have you ever done any consulting for like institutions like these, like casinos or know, anything? Or? They really don't have much interest in it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, they should. <laughs> they, they should, yes. Well, one thing is most gamblers aren't very smart. And, and by the way, the people who get cheated by this aren't the state lottery people. They're the people who buy tickets who don't, aren't in on the Of course, the regressive system. tax in a way, yeah. Well, but it's, it's so, so what happens is you know, they're supposed to give, say, 60 cents from the dollar back. But 30 cents of that is going to people who are figuring this stuff out, which means everybody else is getting only 30 yeah. um, back. And so uh, that's one of the reasons I think they, they're not so yeah. concerned about this sort of stuff. Um, there was a recent uh, um, article, I don't know if you saw this, about some Russian gang that was uh, beating slot machines. And, uh, and you know, this was in Wired. And, and they get it completely wrong. They say that, oh, they figured out how to predict the random number generator, but that's just ridiculous. There is, in the late 70s in the UK, there were some slot machines that ran a very simple repeating pattern, but people figured that very quickly, and the slot machine got pulled out. What people do this day, today is they modify the slot machines, and they modify them so somebody can, can win predictably. If you play it a certain way, you get a predictable win. And some of them get sold to casinos who are naive, and they just sell them cheap, and then they send people in to win the money, and that's what the Russians were doing. Um, some of them get sold to casinos that use them to skim. So the casino manager has confederates who go in and win the money, and then nobody pays any taxes on it. You don't have to report it to the investors. It just yeah. goes right in. Uh, but this has been going on for a long time. 
You don't see it in Nevada. Nevada is very savvy about this kind of stuff, and they have strong, smart, and strong regulators who, who stop it. But you know, you go to casinos, most other places, there are slot machines out there that can be, you know, that, that have these uh, um, things in them. And again, it's it's you know, it's it's the sort of thing that that uh, you would think people would care, but they don't. <laughs> the casino owners, if they're not in on it and actively scamming, it just you know means the customers get less. But you know, uh, uh, they don't. Uh, they don't seem to care very much. And, and this is an important knowledge about the world, that you know, the stuff you think is honest, the stuff you think is done a certain way, um, you just don't take it at face value, unless you, know, unless you checked it yourself and know exactly how it happens. And it's harder to make things random than people think. And people tend to think, oh, all you got to do is you know, uh, sort of mess around and do things randomly. And poker players know this. You, know, you want to randomly switch your uh, game so that other people can't pick up on your tendencies and so on, but it's really hard, you know, yeah. it's, it's uh, even even playing, you know, uh, Rochambeau, Paper, Scissor, Rock, you know, there are computer programs that beat virtually everybody at that game. Now, it's perfectly, all you got to do is play all three with one-third probability each time, but people just cannot do that, and, and the computer will win, like, you know, 60% of the time or something. Um, again, uh, um, very, very few people can do that. So whenever you hear about something being random or unpredictable, you know, it's a pretty good bet, but <laughs> it's not. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for hosting us and speaking on a subject in which uh, I know, at least speaking for Jack and I, that we're very interested in. Uh, and I hope our listeners find the subject of risk and financial markets uh, as interesting as we do as well. Uh, would you like to plug any of your books, because if not, I am happy to do so. <laughs> well, I'll mention, I think uh, the one that would most be interest your readers is The Poker Face of Wall Street, which is only really 10% of poker books, so it's not, it's not something I would buy for poker advice, but it talks a lot about some of the history and some of the connection between poker and finance, in fact, especially people who are poker players interested in finance or finance professional interested in poker. Uh, Red-Blooded Risk has no actual poker in it specifically, but it's a lot about... Uh, risk both in finance and, and out. Uh, financial Risk Management for Dummies, which we mentioned earlier, is, is really more of a technical book for people in that field. I also wrote a book with um, Ruben and Gabriel Brenner called The World of Chance that actually, I don't want to plug that book, but I want to plug is the book Gambling and Speculation, which Ruben Brenner also wrote um, with Gabriel back in 91. A really, really great book about the history and meaning of gambling and its place in society and so on. Uh, World of Chance was supposed to be the new edition of that, um, and I, I, I co-wrote that, but it actually is a completely different book, so it doesn't not, not very much overlap there. So all of those are, are, are good reads. I'd also like to plug uh, Ed Thorpe's autobiography that he came out with this month, or last month, I guess, A Man for All Markets. Uh, really, anybody interested in risk-taking, uh, either in finance or, or casinos, Ed doesn't play poker. He uh, he got kind of, he's got a little interested in the game once, but uh, never really pursued it. Um, but he's the guy who invented blackjack card counting. He also beat uh, roulette and a number of other casino games. And he had a 55-year record as one of the most successful hedge fund managers um, in history. And his, his book is really just a fascinating book with lots of great information. Wow. Yeah, it sounds awesome. like we got some stuff to read. And just to reiterate, so I, I picked up Red-Blooded Risk after Aaron was on the Thinking Poker podcast X amount of months ago. And, uh, you know, I already thought a great deal about risk as a you know, professional poker player and also, you know, someone that I've always considered myself kind of a risk taker. 
Uh, and this book kind of really turned what I thought about risk on its head, and I would highly recommend reading it as soon as possible. So, Aaron, thank you. Well, thank you guys for coming <laughs> over. Of course. Let's play some cards. Yeah. <laughs>